0: Fathers, we come this morning and we lift up our prayers to you as one body, one community, your people. We, we bring you our thanksgivings and our praises. We, we give you thanks for all of the blessings that you have poured out into our lives, um, blessings that we recognize and blessings that we too often take for granted. We, we thank you for the life that you've given us, for the breath that fills our lungs. We thank you for the new life made available to us through the person and, and work of your Son, Jesus the Christ. We thank you for his invitation into the kingdom. We thank you for his work on our behalf, defeating sin, conquering death. We thank you for the spirit that has been poured out into our lives, that is at work here and now. We we pray that we would have ears set to listen and eyes set to see, and hearts that are receptive to the Spirit's prompting and work in and among us. We pray that this morning, as we, we gather and worship, that your Spirit um, would be here, that we would see it and recognize it, and that we would be shaped um, by this, this work. We love you. And it's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. I don't know if you saw this story going around this week, but there is a war of churches happening in Dallas, Texas. And I'm not trying to bash Dallas, except to say it's kind of a nasty city. So what would you expect? Um, So what's happening is there are these two churches, and they have the same name. And so they are now in this legal war over who gets to use that name in their community. Um, It's a branding uh, issue, and they have gone to the courts to fight this out. And it's not a good look for the church, I don't think, um, when two churches are going to court over who gets to call their church what. Now, I say that with the caveat that I kind of understand where these churches are coming from, okay? I, I get branding and the necessity of having a good name and things of that nature. In fact, you know, I kind of signed on to the idea of changing our church's name uh, not that long ago because of, you know, thoughts of how we can communicate ourselves best to the community, thoughts of not having a name too similar to other churches around us. Um, but you got this, um, this church called Lyft in Dallas. And again, I'm not trying to bash these churches or these pastors. I, I understand. I don't claim to have insight into their thing. I think it's a larger phenomenon though to comment on. Um, I think churches, when they get in the business of patents and trademarks, have walked away from the more ancient biblical model for what their true work is. I think the work of the church is not necessarily patents and trademarks, although those things perhaps have a place and time. Um, the work of the church is, is worship, and we started a sermon series two weeks ago called Liturgy, the, the Rhythms That Form Us, and, and at the very beginning, I said this, this series was going to be a time for us to explore the ways that worship serves as the core of discipleship. Discipleship is this process of, of you and I getting more holy, being sanctified, looking and acting more and more like Jesus, finding more and more of the life of Jesus experiencing more and more of the love as a daughter or son of the Father that Jesus has and offers to us through the Spirit. And to do that, we, we recognize that discipleship is kind of a glitchy process for most Christians. It's not necessarily a smooth thing all the time for us to walk out of patterns and habits and, and bad practices, sinful ways, into this kind of holy life. and And perhaps the church has unwittingly adopted certain assumptions that makes discipleship even harder than it should be or has to be. And we, we started off two weeks ago by, by trying to look at humanity. Who, who are we as creatures? How do we operate? How do we change? And how do we go from acting and, and being one way to acting and being in another way? And we said, perhaps we bought into a lie that humanity is just simply a, a thinking creature, is a rational creature because we, we've all been in the place, whether it's with uh, Christianity or with our diets, right, where we know more than we do. We, we outgrow our, our knowledge. And so we know what the right thing to do is, but we just don't want to do that. It's, it's really our wants and our desires at the end of the day that, that constitute who we are as people, the actions that we take. Um, and, and how do you change those wants or those desires? If you're hungry for a donut and you know, though, that, that high sugar is not good for you, what do you do in order to change those desires or wants? We said that's the task of discipleship. It's not just informing us, it's reforming us. It's changing the very nature of who we are. And it works, I, I suggested, to you, so a lot like appetite works. So if you want to change your, your tastes, you can do that. I mean, you can actually change what you desire and want um, based on what you're exposed to, based on the disciplines that you have, based on a commitment maybe to a community who will hold you accountable and, and pass on shared wisdom about how these things happen. Um, and so we, we suggested that perhaps discipleship at times is more like Weight Watchers than it is like a self help seminar, right? It's, it's this community that you enter in, um, into with, with the shared wisdom and you commit to these certain disciplines. That eventually kind of become second nature. And we call those disciplines liturgy. Um, and, and we define liturgy as these identity shaping, kind of love forming, grabbing practices that we participate in as a community regularly. Liturgy might kind of have a bad connotation to us. It can um, bring up ideas of like dead religion or vain repetition. We've got kind of an allergy to repetition in evangelical Christianity that I think um, we would do well to kind of get over. Um, One way of understanding liturgy, you could say it's kind of the spiritual power of habit. Um, You are what you eat, you are what you want to eat, and you become what you do. What you participate in on a repetitive basis, the things that you practice, they end up becoming who you are. If you practice someone who, who offers forgiveness to other people, you eventually become more and more of a forgiving person. So when Jesus tells us to love our enemies and we think, how could I possibly love someone who wants to kill me? The challenge is not to think of the highest litmus test for loving your enemies. It's to start right at the bottom. And go, well, how can I practice loving my enemy in a real way today with that person that I don't like driving next to me? What are the things I can do to start to love and forgive them? And then maybe one day that high test will come. And you'll love without even thinking about it because it's second nature. It's become who you are through this series of practices, these rhythms that, that form us, these intentional kind of identity-shaping um, disciplines that we participate in. Last week, we said that um, if you you look around and you kind of exegete what happens around you at all times, what you'll you'll find, uh, what sociologists and um, theologians have found, is that there are these cultural liturgies all around us. We're invited to, at all times, all these different communal practices that shape what we desire. And a lot like taste, sometimes our wants, our desires are shaped unconsciously. Sometimes that's the most powerful way to shape them. You don't actually have to be aware of yourself being formed to be formed. And this is why cultures are so good at producing a certain type of people. I mean, they're, they're, they're almost unbeaten with this. You, you can have your kind of individuals in a culture, but yet in a Western American culture, they still come out as consumerist. Why is that? There's no, you don't think your way into consumerism, right? And, and we're suggesting maybe you don't think your way out either. Maybe it's, it's through these rhythms that we've been offered by God that we might call worship. Maybe this is how we are shaped. This is how our, our desires are shaped. This morning, I want to, to explore how and why the church's worship is the heart of discipleship. We've, we've looked at ways that, like at a mall, you have different liturgies that are, are oriented toward a certain vision of the good life that that um, kind of implant a certain narrative and desire in our uh, imaginations, and our social imaginations. Um, and we've been hinting at the fact that it's what the church does together that forms this kind of counter-liturgy. These, these rhythms and practices that we commit to that reshape our desires to want God, to want Christ, to want his kingdom. And this morning, I want to explore kind of how and why that, that happens and how and why that's true. And, and then how and why it's so important for churches not to, to miss what their true vocation is, to not get into um, the business of patents and trademarks, but to keep steady in the vocation of calling the people of God to worship, to these ancient, faithful um, practices of worship. So if you have a Bible, open up with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you have been at the church for a while, we, we go to this passage. Um, more than once. um, I think it's a very powerful uh, place in the scriptures. Um, It's informed much of what I think about the importance of worship and the importance of church um, in the um, Christian life. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15, verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 16 and 17, just two verses here. We're going to read like a Texan here this morning. Um, and so what that means is these these pronouns in the Greek and the original language are plural and so in Texas we would say y'all um, and we'll pay attention to these plural and, and singular pronouns because they have significance for us so we read in a text and accent in verse 16 do you do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all if anyone destroys God's temple God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and y'all are that temple. We have a tendency to read this in individualistic terms. And so we think we are a temple and God has all these little temples running around the world. In reality, there's one temple. It's singular here. And y'all, the community, he's talking to a group of believers here, not necessarily a very good one in First Corinthians. This is a group of believers who has lots of problems. They're, they're by no means this kind of perfect community of worshipers. But yet, Paul still makes this claim That that community, the relationships and activities that shape that community, that form, that constitute that community, that's the temple of God. The temple of God being where God's spirit is at work. The place where you can go to encounter God's presence and his activity. The place where you can be transformed. And it's this truth that the church, not a building, but the community that it's relationships and activities, that that's the most potent and active place of the Spirit's work. It's this truth that drives us to understand worship as so important to this task of discipleship, as, as um, kind of a, so important that you can't replace it with something else. You, you can't replace it with just listening to sermons on your own in a room by yourself. That's never going to do quite the same thing that being in the community is going to do. Why? Well, we don't get to make the rules. This is us receiving truth from Scripture. This is where the Spirit's at work at. And it was just as odd for Paul as it is for us. These are a weird group of people that you wouldn't expect God to choose to work in and through. And you and I maybe are just as weird and just as flawed and just as imperfect, and yet there's no more beautiful truth that this is indeed the place where God is working. The church, the body of Christ, is a place where God invites us in our language that we're using to renew our loves, to reorient our desires, to retrain our appetites and the practices of the church. What we'll call worship is a spiritual workout of sorts. It's an invitation into routines and rhythms that will train our, our heart muscles our worship muscles, our our desires, our fundamental desires that govern the way we move and act in the world. The reason that worship is so powerful and is so important is because it's where God is working. It's not what we bring to the table in worship that makes it special. It's, It's not our ability to do certain things or to accomplish certain things. It's not our brilliance in planning or executing certain things. It's not even our sincerity necessarily. That counts. What counts is God showing up and moving. The Spirit works in these ordinary, everyday practices, routines, much like he works in ordinary, everyday people. There's the this, this scriptural principle, um, the incarnation, when, when God becomes flesh, when, when God the Son becomes a human being, Jesus of Nazareth. This, this principle behind this is that God meets us where we are. So we're material, embodied creatures, and God takes on that materiality, and and he becomes a physical thing in our world to reveal himself to us, to interact with us. And this is true throughout the the gamut of creation and and Christian faith, that um, God meets us in the material. Worship, the church's worship, is a very material thing. You need lungs to breathe. You need vocal cords to sing. You need legs and feet to stand. You need arms to raise if you're bold. You need eyes to see. You need ears to hear. You need skin to feel the water when you're dunked. You need taste buds to taste the, the grape juice, maybe wine, if you're lucky. And the bread. Yet it's through these things, the incarnational approach to, to viewing the acts of worship, it's through these things that God works and moves in and meets us. If it's true that we're creatures of habits, whose loves are formed by um, the, the habits that we participate in, then the best gift God give us are spirit-infused practices that will reform us, that will train us, that will um, retrain our loves. He meets us in these counterformative formative practice with, with these hunger-shaping rituals. When we say worship, when I talk about worship, I'm talking about the full activity of the church in an ancient, more kind of biblical sense. I'm not just talking about singing songs. That's an aspect of worship, an important aspect of worship. But I'm talking about a, what you might call a worship service. So it includes singing, includes reading scripture, it includes um, exhortations from the scriptures, what we might call today a sermon. It includes coming to the table, includes participating in things like baptism, it includes these, these practices that have been handed down to us, the church's kind of weight-watcher system, this received wisdom of what it is that we can do to, to get ourselves in the right location, the right frame of mind for God to work in and through us. And this worship, I, I think, is the heart of discipleship. Our formation as Christians is life-encompassing, so it happens every day, at every hour, at every second, I would argue that it radiates out of the church's communal life. So in a a sense, you might say it starts when we're together and pulses throughout the rest of our lives as we adopt those practices in our personal lives, in our family lives, with our children, at our workplace. And it's important to recognize who's working because that changes everything when we talk about and think about worship. Worship's not powerful because we're working. It's powerful because the spirit works. Too often we reduce it to singing. And once we reduce it to singing, worship becomes primarily something that we do. We're the primary agent or actor in worship. And when you think that, the whole kind of worship game is failed from the beginning. If worship depends on you, then we're all in a bad place. If worship depends on me, you're in a horrible place. If worship depends on, on my ability to, to um, use rhetoric or my ability to communicate well, then we're up or down, depending on how it goes. If worship depends on, depends on how you feel or how you feel, again, we're kind of up or down depending on how it goes. There are some Sundays I don't want to be here. I mean, I just, I don't feel like it. I'm assuming there are some Sundays you don't feel like it. But what's important is that we still show up. Showing up, it turns out, I think is about 90% of the battle. Responding to God's invitation that this is where I'm going to work. And it's kind of this freeing thought that it doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on how well I do or how I feel. Um, When we we hear liturgy, we can think of of this bad word. Um, The Protestant Reformation saw what the Roman Catholic Church was doing, in, in all senses of theology and practice, in particular in their liturgies and their kind of scripts and rhythms for worship. And, and they thought that it was leaning towards, if not already at, this kind of works righteousness, where people had come up with their own ways, and, and if they just did this, they could trust that eventually they would be saved, and they didn't really need God for much of it. Um, and they thought that this was true in their liturgies. They thought the priests were, were the whole act of worship was all about the priests doing something. And it it really wasn't centered on what God was doing. The priest had to say these words the exact right way. The priest was responsible for transforming the wine and and the bread into the body and blood of Jesus. And and their reaction was one that wanted to emphasize God's grace, God's primacy, his agency as the necessary and first actor in all things. But they didn't do this by saying liturgy itself is bad. They weren't anti-liturgical. They were properly liturgical. They reformed the church's worship it might be time for us to to start reforming evangelical Christianity's worship as we realize that the Spirit meets us and nourishes us in these material practices and words and water and food and drink. We could um, put it like this. If worship is not for me, if it's not primarily meant to be something I do or an experience that I have that meets my felt needs, whatever I may or may not think needs to happen, if it's not about me, if it's about God, if I'm not the primary actor in worship, but God is the primary actor, then this makes this kind of freeing revelation. And this this gets us out of this kind of insidious works righteousness. Because if you start talking about habit and and, and rituals and rhythms, too much repetition, it's easy to fall into, again, this kind of works righteousness. The key is to realize these rhythms, these rituals are gifts given to us by God. All of worship is a call and response. All of life really is a call and response. God calls us into creation, and we respond to him faithfully, or so we are supposed to. God calls human beings into existence, and they have a task in front of them to be image bearers, and they are supposed to respond faithfully. God calls Israel into existence, and they are to live a life of faithful response. God calls the church into existence, and we're to live a life of faithful response. If you go to a higher liturgical church, all of this worship script will be call and response. The priest will say something, and then the people will say something. It's this rhythm back and forth. No matter what level, 10,000 feet or 5 feet, you look at, the church is a call and response activity. God calls us to worship on the anniversary of Jesus' resurrection, on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. And we respond by coming and participating in the practices that he's, he's given us. God calls us to the table, and we respond by coming and eating and drinking. God calls us into the water, and we respond by getting into the water and being baptized, being dunked, going in and coming out. Liturgy is this acting and responding, and it all happens through the work of the Spirit. We said that the, the, the unique, powerful, profound, interesting things about liturgy is they're not just things that we do, they're things that do things to us like an iPhone, right? You create the iPhone and then we play on the iPhone, but it turns out the iPhone plays on us, right? I mean, it starts to shape how we experience the world, the things we expect from the world. The mall isn't just somewhere we go and do things. We said, if you think about it, the mall kind of does things to us, kind of forms us into this consumerist, this materialist. Worship is not somewhere we just go to do things. It's somewhere where God does things to us. When we hear Scripture, when we exhort one another through Scripture, when we form around the Word, when we form around the table, this is where God is acting in and and through us. One scholar says, "...to participate in liturgy is to enter the sphere of God's acting, not just of God's presence. We are to appropriate God's action in faith and gratitude through the work of the Spirit. A liturgy is a meeting between God and God's people, a meeting in which both parties act, but in which God initiates, and we respond." We show up. We respond to the grace, the call of God with gratitude, with our response. Now, when you think that worship is primarily about something that we do, then what becomes the most important part of worship is how you feel when you do it. It's having sincerity, authenticity. If worship is about what we can bring to the table when we sing songs, then it is kind of important that we really mean those songs. And as most people know, unless you change things up a whole lot, sometimes sincerity and authenticity starts to kind of go out the window. And this is where the church kind of starts looking for how can we keep being new and novel? How can we keep being exciting? How can we change things up so that we'll constantly feel the right way in worship? Based on this assumption that we have to feel the right way in worship. Based on something that we bring worship to its accomplishment, not that God brings worship to its accomplishment. And this, I think, changes a whole lot of different things. We, we think the most important aspect of worship in this model is what you might call like expressivity, like our expression of worship is what's important. And so worship is more of an expression of belief than a formation of desires, which I would argue is what, what it should and, and truly is. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion, to give him our praise. We're called to worship. Because in this encounter, in these relationships, in this time, through these practices, this is where God remakes us, remolds us. Worship's the arena where God works on our hearts and our desires. It's the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. And, and to the extent that we recover a, a biblical sense of the primacy of God's action in worship, I think we'll recover an appreciation for why the form of worship matters why the embodied experience of worship matters. And for how changing that form up can get you to a place where all of a sudden now you're more mired in patents and trademarks than you are in scripture and table. What we've, we've thought is we, we made this form, dis- content distinction where, where we said what really matters about Christianity is the message because we're rational creatures. So we can dress the message up however we want to. However, we can best communicate that. Whatever we can make people most comfortable with, most um, novel with, whatever we can make people feel the best about. And what we've done is we've looked around and we've said, okay, our methods don't really work that well. It's confusing to people, it's uncomfortable to people. And so, evangelical Christianity, which I critique out of, I'm a part of this. It's not an outside bash. This is me saying, this is what I've discovered as I've grown up in it, as we've grown up in this. Moved away from the Gothic cathedral. We moved away from kneeling on the ground, and we moved away from repeating creeds, and we moved more towards a concert people are pretty comfortable. They enjoy it. It, especially, is really good at bringing out that expressivity. It really makes people feel. And we thought, well, we'll baptize it with Jesus, though. I mean, we'll keep this, we'll keep this Jesusy, and then we lament the fact that people become church shoppers. We lament the fact that they think that. Church is all about meeting their felt needs. We we lament the fact that, ironically, the form has kind of twisted the message, the content. There's a, a phrase that I think is true. It's that the medium is the message. The way you communicate something is part of the communication itself, which is why I think it's not a good idea to bring people to church because you're giving away cars. Right? I mean, does it, will it accomplish the purpose Will we have more people here this morning than we do right now if we were giving away a Corvette? Maybe. But what are you communicating with that medium? This is where you come to get something special that will meet your consumeristic, unrealistic, absolutely worthless felt needs for a fancy car that will make you feel sexy and new and rich and powerful. I mean, that itself starts to get embedded in what you're offering. It, it shifts things up. What, what, what evangelicals thought they could do was that they could sanctify the mall, but what in reality happened was that they commodified Jesus. And so Jesus becomes just another product to consume among other products. Pastors no longer are people who call out what God is doing in and around their community and lead people in faithful practices of worship, they become tech startups. Branding experts, personality cults, the the mall, the concert—it takes over. The liturgy starts to creep into the message in ways that are very powerful. Which why there's a lot of people who I agree with who would say the future of the church is ancient. It's recovering and committing to these received, wise practices of worship. Coming back to the table, coming back to the word. As a preacher, one of the best pieces of advice I was ever given is: don't try to hit a home run every weekend. Don't don't try to have the best sermon. It's going to convert everybody, make everyone cry every single weekend. Now I know you're like, well, you do. How does that happen? It's just not my goal anymore. the The advice was this: look, instead of instead of trying to understand a sermon as your one opportunity to change a person's life for the rest of their life, which is a lot of pressure. It's not something most people can ever do once in their life, much less repeatedly over and over and over again. Instead of doing that, just do something solid. I mean, open up the Bible. Teach them something about the scriptures they didn't know already. Point out something they wouldn't have come on to their own conclusion, most likely, without study. If you, do, if you just hit a single every week, you strike out a couple times here and there, but for the most part, you just move the ball around. You get it in play. What would be the cumulative effect after three years, after five years, after ten years? And what we find, and what is common sense to us, it's, it's much more than the parts of the individual. It's much more than just every little home run sermon or, or song that's sung or invitation to communion. There's something, and and I never was able to formulate why this is true, although a few years I stumbled across this. There's something powerful, almost secretive in its power and its impact about showing up to church regularly. There's a difference. There's a difference between someone who for the last three years has gone to six different churches and shows up about once or twice a month, Again, I'm not bashing those people. I'm saying there's a difference between that person their faith and the person who has committed to a community and shows up as often as they can because it's a priority. Who doesn't judge a a, a value of a worship service based on the communication of the preacher or the sound quality of the music, but judges it based on God's activity. Because you can listen to a really bad sermon and yet God be powerfully at work in your life. And you can listen to someone singing off tune and yet God can be at work. That's not what constitutes worship. It's God's activity in worship. To the extent that worship is formation, the form matters. The form in worship being kind of the narrative arc that's embedded or loaded into our actions. Next week, we're going to walk through some of this more in depth. So the same way we looked at cultural liturgies, like the mall or the stadium, talked about what kind of stories are implanted in here, how are they shaping our desires. We'll look at different practices of the church on, on, say, a Sunday morning in its primary worship service. For now, I'll just point out one, how our actions are kind of loaded with a specific narrative that that shapes and informs us, often at an unconscious level. Um, When I became the pastor of this church, I came out of a background that did not participate in communion or the Eucharist, the table every week. And that when it participated, it was a closed event. It was for church members. It was for those who met like a certain criteria. And when I became a pastor, obviously the church participated in other um, acts of, of worship when it comes to the table. It was an every week type of thing. It was repetitive. I was like, this is going to lose its authenticity. This is no longer going to be cool if I'm not doing it, if I'm doing it more than once a quarter, right? I mean, this is no longer going to mean anything to me. What I found was the exact opposite. The tables never meant more to me than when I did it every week. Why is that? What's at work there? I'm guessing most of you who have been at the church probably have experienced this too. Particularly if you came out of a tradition where this wasn't happening every week. It means something more to you. If you don't do it, you miss something more than you missed previously when you didn't do it. It holds this kind of incarnational, sacramental experience where God's working through these material things. And then the, the invitation of the table to, to everyone, that is loaded with a narrative. That's loaded with a story, God reconciling the entire world to himself. What What's the, the message being communicated? When So if I go on a retreat for a school or if I'm um, with a youth group on a weekend doing a conference and we do communion and it is um, kind of a closed invitation type thing, to me now, all of a sudden, and this would have never happened before, but all of a sudden, it's like a red flag is blinking. A red, red, red alarm system is blinking in front of me. And I'm like, this seems so wrong. I mean, it seems, why are we even doing this if it's like this? And we're contradicting the very heart of it um, by, by participating in this way. The reason I feel that way is because I've done it so often. And now when the invitation is closed, I go, what's the point? I mean, it's the point of worship for us to get together and congratulate ourselves because we've met certain criteria and now we're invited. Because that's sure not my experience. I don't think that's what the scripture teaches us, is how you and I became a part of this kingdom. You know, discipleship is kind of an immigration process, which is in the news right now and the heart of a lot of debates. but, But in this immigration process, we're transferred out of one kingdom and into another. The good news is that kingdom's open to everybody, and all are invited to come learn the new values of that kingdom, can participate in the new habits of that kingdom. No one gets deported. The great news about worship is that the church never shuts down, because God's doing it. Now, if it was up to me and our board, there might be a shutdown. If it was up to my health, then when I get sick on a Sunday morning and I call Jake and I say, hey, I can't be there, you might as well cancel church. Instead, the, the handful of times that's happened, I get letters and, and phone calls and emails from visitors who are like, that was the most powerful thing I've ever experienced. Why? Because you don't need a paid person for worship. It's not dependent on any one person showing up and doing one thing or another. It's God working. And that's why we come, that's why we show up, that's why we commit, because God has promised to be present and active through these relationships, through this time, through these practices. And so, again, the future of the church is ancient. Worship is not primarily necessarily a venue for creativity and innovation as much as it is a place for discerning reception, for faithful commitment. This is why art is so important. The arts are so important in worship to grab our imaginations, poetry and metaphor, imagery. I think we have lots to learn from ancient Christians, particularly because their rituals and liturgies were much more intentional than ours are by virtue of where they and when they lived. So they were surrounded by much more overtly liturgical rivalries, if you will. The marketplace was a temple in the ancient world. I mean, this was a big problem for Christians. What do we do when we go buy meat? And it was meat that was gotten and sacrificed and produced for a certain God. And so when they got together, they were very intentional. What are our practices doing to us? How is this countering and resisting these other liturgies that we're invited into at all times and places? Our culture's gotten much smarter, though. It said, let's stop telling people we're doing this. So when you talk about the mole in kind of religious sense, it sounds kind of silly, right? The point's not to think about it. The point's just to go do it. But then upon reflection, you find it might be doing powerful things to you. Because their their surrounding culture, I think, was more overt, the practices they adopted and received from Jesus and from the Israelites, they honed over time, are much more powerful, all the more powerful because of that. So this morning, I invite you to gratefulness. Gratefulness for the gift of the church. Gratefulness for the promise that this is where the Spirit moves. Not a building, not a brand, not a name, not a pastor, but a community. I invite you to gratefulness. It's not dependent on what we do. That The worship is, is where God acts and we are invited and given space and freedom to respond. I invite you to gratefulness for the promise of worship. As we come to the table and we eat and we drink that just like a, a diet we might find our taste start to change. We want to eat and drink more and more with the right stuff, hunger and righteousness. I invite you to commitment to worship to this community, to these practices, to this call given to the community of God's people. We give thanks to God for meeting us where we are, and for for providing to us this this lifeline from one country to another, this tunnel from one kingdom to another, as the Spirit works in and through a community and its, it's practices of worship. Will you pray with me? Father, we give thanks to you again this morning as we recognize, we don't create, but we recognize that what we're doing right now is simply joining into worship that is always happening around your throne in heaven. We don't start it, we just start to participate in it. We give you thanks for the freeing truth that worship's not about us primarily, well, it's where you work and invite us into worship. Um, participation with you. We, we give you thanks for your grace, which permeates even our faithfulness. Uh, we, we pray that you would allow us um, to be committed to the practice, the vocation of worship. Um, that in it we would find not just a wrap to express how much we love you, although we do and, and we need places to express that and hone that expression, but, but that we would find in it a place where you continue to call us to yourself, where you continue not only to offer us life, but to shape us into wanting to find that life even more. As we come to the table this morning, we come expectant that you are working and you are active, and it is here that we will meet you and be shaped more and more into the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.